So we're going to jump back into the life of Peter. So far, if you remember, so far we have um, looked at um, when he's called to be a fisher of men, right? That was out of Luke chapter 5. And we looked at, that's not actually the first time Jesus meets Peter and calls Peter. Um, it's actually the second time. Jesus already knows Peter at that point. And we talked about how we actually all have that call on our lives as well. Then uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at what is one of, uh, it's probably my second favorite story involving Peter. The first we'll get to uh, in about a month. But um, my second favorite story involving Peter where he walks on water, right? And we looked at this incredible moment with Peter where, yes, his faith deserts him uh, while he's out on the water. But Jesus picks him up anyway. But he's the only one of the 12 that gets out of the boat, right? And we looked at the fact that when you're a Christian in the world, everyone, including other believers, when you step out for God, is going to ridicule you, is going to say you're a foolish moron, right? We used a whole lot of terms. Pick your favorite one um, that's clean and family-friendly. Um, you know, if they wouldn't say it. In a G-rated Disney movie, you probably shouldn't say it here either. Um, but either way, um, although that's not quite as uh, small a circle as it used to be. Whatever. Um, what was the joke that I told to you, like, it was like six years ago. Remember, we were looking back through the, no, time out, time out. A couple of days ago, she was like, I want to get back to the message where I first told you I liked you. So we're scrolling back through Facebook messages, just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And she told me I was on a rabbit trail. Oh, that's right. She goes, you're on a rabbit trail about something. And I said, I would never. By the way, I enjoy hiking. Because it's a trail. Get it? Either way. Um, so, Peter, when, when, you, when you are stepping out, people aren't going to get it. They won't. Last week wasn't about Peter, but if you want a reminder, we, we uh, talked about the love of a father and how he's wise and, and, and loving. You can go back. All this stuff is on Facebook, on YouTube, and Andy does a great job of, of um, editing, thank you, of editing it down, and it's on our on our on that, it's on Spotify. We're on Spotify if you ever want to find us on there uh, and stuff like that. So if you're like, boy, I missed a sermon, you have no excuses. There's a bunch of places you can find it. That's the past couple of weeks. This week, we're looking at Peter in what is one of the highest points of his life. And simultaneously, well, not simultaneously, but immediately afterward, one of the lowest points of his life. He's about to be told by Jesus, God incarnate on earth, that he is the one in which he will build the church around. That this is Peter the rock, and he's this, God has revealed things to him, and it's great. And moments later, he's like, you're Satan, shut up. That's what happens to Peter. Let's read it. We're in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 23. It's on your screens as usual. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 23. It reads, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Your translations might say prevail against it. 
excuse me, I lost my spot. I'm going to go back to verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Side note, if I had a sentence that had that many ands in it, my mom would have made me rewrite it when she was proofreading my essays. I don't get why God gets to do it, but I don't. Just saying. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Okay, let's talk about it. Number one, on your note sheets, if you grabbed a bulletin and have a note sheet. Number one, a mountaintop. A mountaintop. So we find it, Peter is traveling with the disciples and Jesus, and they enter this region. And Jesus asks them a very pointed question. You'll notice if you read throughout uh, all four Gospels, when we see Jesus ask questions, it is never flippant. It is never a, just a question just to like, it's never an icebreaker. It's never a, let's just get to conversation. No. Jesus asks pointed, direct questions that he wants answers to. Now, I'm not saying he never did an icebreaker. We, he, was, he traveled for three years, and we know very little about those three years. So he probably did use icebreakers at points. Um, you know, maybe he played 20 questions with them or something like that, right? You're walking from place to place. There was probably a lot of I spy going on, right? But when we read about him, we see it's pointed questions. So he asks this pointed question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who is he asking? Uh, I need to word this right because I almost confused myself. Um, he's not asking who do the disciples say he is. He's asking who do the general populace say that he is. The people that have heard some of his sermons and some of his stuff, but have not had really the direct teachings of Jesus in their life, right? And they give, and the disciples are like, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist, that you and John are one of the same. Notice that John, remember that John the Baptist has already been beheaded by this time. He's a dead man. Uh, and John the Baptist, if you go especially read in the book of John, which was not written by him, uh, but you read in the book of John, you will see quite a lot of John the Baptist in the first couple chapters saying, I'm not the Christ. It is not me. It's that guy over there. It is not me, okay? So even though he was saying that, people still missed it. And then some people are like, well, you're one of the prophets, right? Elijah or, or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And Jesus goes, yeah, okay, okay. Who do you say that I am? That's what the people who have heard me preach say. You have been my closest friends for a couple of years now. Who do you say that I am? And none of them have the, as my... um band teacher in, in 6th, 7th, and 8th grade would say, none of them had the testicular fortitude to come out and say it, what they thought. He would say that to the brass players when they weren't playing well enough, just so you know. I played saxophone, so he never said it to me. Usually it was, please shut up, Sam, both with my voice and with the saxophone itself. Um, he says, who do you say I am? Who's the only one that will stand up and say anything? It's Peter, the leader of the group, the impulsive one of the group, 
the perhaps oldest of the group. I'm not going to say that unequivocally, but I think when we read throughout Scripture, we see that, one, we know he's at least 30 years old, right? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago because he was married and had kids. So we know he's at least 30 years old. Uh, my guess is he is not 30 or 31. Um, and for those of you that might not know, uh, 30 years old because in the Jewish world, Back then, you were not a man. You could not marry, own your own business, stuff like that, until you were 30 years old. Most people know the 12-year-old thing, but that's not when you became a man. That is when you chose where you're going to follow in your father's footsteps, i.e. become a carpenter, a fisherman, stuff like that, or would you study to become a rabbi? It was 30 that you became a man. So we know Peter is at least 30 years old, and I think he's, I'm not saying 15 years older than that, but I think he's well into his 30s. It's just the vibe that I get from him. Could be wrong. Could he get up to heaven, and he's like, I was 30. I'd been married for two minutes at that point. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is that I think he's the oldest. He's definitely the leader of this group. And he stands up and he says, you are the Christ. I'm in verse 16. The son of the living God. Peter is a smart man. He can sometimes come across as dumb, but that's more because he's impulsive than his intelligence level. Let that be a lesson to the rest of us as well. It doesn't matter how smart you are. If you let your impulses control you, you're going to come across as pretty dumb. But it is not him that caused this revelation to happen. Jesus says in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You couldn't figure this out on your own. But my Father, who is in heaven, revealed this to you. I always found that interesting. I don't have a deep theological thing, but it tells me a lot about Peter. Peter's not perfect. Peter is impulsive. Peter has some issues. And yet, it is him who God decides to reveal these truths to. It's him. Not John, the most beloved one, as we read in John. It's pretty nice, right? When you write your own, it's like Abraham saying he's the most humble man that ever walked the earth. Yeah. It's nice when you are the one writing that. Go read it. It's in there. It's like, I'm the most humble man. Yeah, I could write that too. It doesn't make me that. Either way. It's a direct revelation from God. Before this book existed, the Old Testament existed, not in the way that we have it, but the books of the Old Testament existed. But we didn't have this yet. The Holy Spirit, while he was... Um, around, right? He, didn't, he wasn't created after this. He was not yet on earth. Jesus, when he ascends into heaven, sends him down to the earth. So he's not on earth in the way that he is now, indwelling believers and such. This is a direct revelation from God to Father, the Father to Peter, who has proven himself already to be the most impulsive, but also the one with the deepest faith. I.e., the one who would listen. I don't think the rest of them would have listened to God the Father if he had told them. Peter did. And not only that, but Jesus goes on here to tell him, boy, I will, you are the rock upon which I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it, will not prevail against it. Peter would eventually um, become, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again, Peter would eventually become one of the two pillars of Christianity after Jesus' ascension into heaven. Paul was the missionary. What was Peter? Peter was the head of the church, i.e., the rock upon which the church was built. He was the one who stayed mostly in Jerusalem and led the early church. 
it came to pass. It took some time. It took Peter getting knocked down a few pegs, but it came to pass. Put yourself in Peter's shoes. And the God of the universe has just told you, you're going to be the rock upon which I build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You, Peter, what do you think of that? It's really easy to imagine and understand why Peter gets himself a pretty big head. Peter, who I think when we read throughout scripture, I, I really see him already struggling with things like pride, gets this huge boost to his pride. It's like somebody hooked up an air compressor to his head and just turned it on, and that thing just started. Y'all ever seen, I don't know the last time any of these commercials, no, this actually makes sense. Um, I don't remember the last time one of these commercials aired, but remember the airhead commercials where they would take a bite of an airhead and then their heads would blow up? There's like two people that are like, yeah, anybody watch TV? Is that a thing? That's what happened to this man. Jesus himself, God himself, is building up this man. It makes sense he would get a big head. Now that's not an excuse for his big head. But I get it. I get it. I see why he would be this way. The other thing we read about him that I see in this is that Peter, not for the first time and definitely not for the last time, has the boldness to speak the truth into a situation. We will see it throughout the book of Acts. He has boldness to speak truth and the truth of God to anyone, whether they want to listen or not. Now, he messes up a couple more times, right? He will, we, we know about the, and we're going to read about it in a couple of weeks, right? But his biggest mess up, the whole uh, denying Jesus three times thing. There's a moment in Acts when he's told to go to this family's house, a Roman centurion's house, and Peter's like, I don't know, God, he's a Gentile. And God's like, do you see all this meat? You're allowed to eat it now. So go, um, go, go, go proselytize to him. Uh, that's a very quick summation of a story about how the Gentiles are allowed in and why you're allowed to eat bacon. Um, Peter's not perfect. He's going to have moments in his life still where he doesn't speak in boldness. I'm not saying he does it every single time from here on out. He does not. But what we see is more often than not, he does. And you and I are called to do the same thing. We are called to speak boldly, not stupidly, but boldly into every person's life, the truth of the gospel. I've said this before and I'll say it again. You are never called to offend somebody with your political views, your sports views, your music views, anything like that. You are called to, uh, to offend people with the gospel because the gospel is offensive. By its very nature, it's offensive. Peter speaks boldly. And he has this great honor in his life. And I understand why he gets this big head. Number two on your note sheets, because I've got four minutes to preach the rest of this sermon. Number one was a mountaintop. Number two, valley low. Mountaintop, valley low. Very quickly afterward, we see from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and die. Right? I'll summarize all those ands. He's going to suffer and die by the hands of the chief priests and such. This is Jesus' most intimate teaching. More important than the Beatitudes, which he spends what we see as three chapters on. More important than anything else he preaches or teaches in the whole of his time on earth. It's this. And notice who he's talking about it to. His 12 best friends. The 12 people 
11, because Judas is going to kill himself, right? But the people who will be the first carriers of this message throughout the known world, joined by Paul eventually. And others, as it grew and grew and grew and grew. People like Stephen and others, who were not part of this, but caught on pretty darn quick. This is not teaching that he told to the masses of 30,000 people when he fed them fish and bread. This was, a, this was a lesson, a teaching, for one-on-one, -on -one, essentially. Small group setting. It wasn't the churches that started the small group, it was Jesus. And he teaches them this incredible, intimate teaching. He's really bearing his soul. Can you imagine if, one, if your best friend came to you and said, I have to go to the city where they want me dead. I will hand myself over to them, essentially. I will suffer unimaginable pain and suffering, ridicule, mocking, humiliation, and then I will die. That's what Peter hears. Right? We like to destroy people for not understanding things when we read about it in Scripture. Put yourself in his shoes. His best friend, who he's just called God, is saying he's going to die. It makes sense that Peter's like, Ooh, time out, time out. Hang on a second. What does Peter do? Notice, he pulls Jesus aside. He's like, come here, Jesus. When you don't want to humiliate somebody with something, right? Like, you know, if you've got your, um, this has happened. Uh, I've had to do this to people before, right? Their, their fly is down, right? If Andy's fly was down, and I'm up there in worship, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Andy, zip up your pants. I'm not going to do that. Right? I don't want to humiliate Andy. I don't, think he, I don't think he's humiliated Andy. Are your pants unzipped? Good. I am so glad we have zippers. I used to own a pair of pants that just had the buttons going up. That's awful. You got to go to the bathroom real bad. That's like the worst thing you could wear besides like a romper. I've never worn a romper, just saying. It, right, but he pulls Jesus aside because he, he doesn't want to humiliate Jesus when he's rebuking him. Peter is such a big-headed idiot. It's the truth. He's like, I, Jesus, I know I called you God. You're wrong about this. You, you misunderstood. Let me, um, come here, come here, Jesus, come here. It'd be like when my dad, I'll give you another one. Lene, what did my dad say when we were being bad and we were right at the edge? Okay. Maybe you didn't hear this as much as I did. Let's see. When we were out in public. Yeah, there it is. Thank you. And, and he, would, he would, I'm going to step off camera screen here, people. I'll use my wife. He would get, I'll come over here. So you're me. I'm my dad, okay? He would get this close to you go for a walk because he wasn't going to humiliate you yet no no because no one else heard he would just be that close to you now he wasn't above humiliating his children I'll tell you that that's a good parent shouldn't be but he was like I'll give you your chance this is Peter he's, he's, trying, he's thinking he knows so much just as we do. How many times have we looked at God and said, no, God, I don't think so. You've misunderstood the situation. 
you who is sovereign created the situation. You don't understand the situation here. I know better than you do, God. Do you know when you do that? Every time you sin, you are telling God you know better than he does. Every single time. There's more times than that, but that's the most common one. We pull Jesus aside and say, God, I know more. I know better than you. Right? We do, that in, we do that in ministry. We do it in the lives of our families. We do it in our own lives. We do it all over the place. We like to destroy Peter here. How did Peter not get it? And yet, daily, we pull Jesus aside and rebuke him. As if we have any, any real knowledge about anything. And Peter goes from being told, you are the rock upon which I will build my church, to in verse 23, get behind me, Satan. I always, when I memorize this verse, uh, and I didn't like sit down and go, I'm going to memorize Matthew 16, 23. I just heard it so many times and I liked it. I enjoy the King James version of it because they throw a random thee in there. It's get thee behind me, Satan. And I just think it has more authority in it. Get thee behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block. Now, obviously it's the name Satan. What does the name Satan mean? Does anybody know? Not quite. Close, but not quite. Enemy or adversary. That's all the name Satan means. There's no actual proof that that's his technical name. It just became what was popular to call him because he was the enemy or the adversary. It's all that Satan means. So Jesus is not only calling him Satan, he's also saying, you are now my enemy. You are my adversary, Peter. Why? Because you are a stumbling block to me. And notice, he tells him exactly what's going wrong with Peter in this moment. He doesn't just leave him out there. He doesn't just go, get thee behind me, Satan, and walk away. No, Jesus, ever the teacher, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. What was God's interest? We read it in the book of Isaiah. To crush him, to pierce him, to kill him for us. Man's interest, Peter's interest, was to not see his friend go through that. God's interest was to send his son as a blood offering for the sins of the world. Church, too often we are stuck in man's interest. Let me give you an example. This past week, I got a phone call from my dad saying, hey, can you borrow Grammy's truck? There's a place up here outside of Binghamton that's got a whole bunch of stuff for free that can really help out our kids' ministry. And I went, yeah, he said, can you get it for tomorrow? And I said, yeah, let me call her. And sure enough, yeah, it was free. So we'll grabbed the, the truck, and we went up there uh, to this church that's in Endwell? Endwell. Their foyer could fit this room, that room, the entire hallway, and probably a couple of the rooms down the hallway. Not their sanctuary, not the whole of their building, their foyer. Massive church. While I was moving stuff, I took a little detour and peeked in their sanctuary. I wanted to see it. It's great. It was beautiful in the in the modern day sense you not not like how ours is beautiful with stained glass windows and stuff like that but just it was simple and the the the, the band the instruments were laid out perfectly right not unbalanced it was great 
Oh. And I walked out of there as I'm carrying stuff. I went, man, what could we do with those resources? If we had as many rooms as they did, as many people as they did, as many, as, as much, everything as they did. Man. I was jealous. Beautiful church, massive church. They had people, not as much as they used to before COVID, but people, and I was like, man. And as I'm carrying tables out, I felt the Holy Spirit go, is what I gave you not good enough? I didn't call you to a church in Endwell. I called you to a church in New Milford. Yeah, you might want some of that stuff, and it's not bad to pray for certain things, right? We're constantly praying for more help in the kids' wing. It's great. It's a great problem to have. Stuff like that, right? I love an all-purpose building. That's a gymnasium and stuff. It's not going to happen. At least not yet, and that's okay. You see, in that moment, for that brief moment, and I, it, it was brief because God's, God got a hold of me and, and said, hey. But in that brief moment, my interest was on man's. Look how successful they are. Versus God's interest. I measure success differently. Now, I'm not bashing that church because I talked to their children's pastor and various other ones. And they are desperately trying to reach people with the gospel. So they're successful in God's terminology as well. I'm not trying to bash that church by any means. Because what they are trying to do is also incredible. But in that moment, I had my interest on man's, my own. Not, oh, I want to become the pastor here. No, no, I want FBC to be bigger to have a full worship team, to have not necessarily lights and smoke machines and stuff like that, but to be, to be bigger, to have an all-purpose building that's got a gymnasium so that when we've got a whole bunch of sixth graders and it's raining outside, we don't have to keep them cooped up in a room somewhere. We can say, let's go into the gym and you can just run around like maniacs because that's what they're going to do anyway. Man's interests versus God's. God's interests, I wasn't focused on them in that moment. And neither is Peter here. So let's apply it to our lives. Go ahead and tell mom, because she's going to be wondering when I'm done. Let's apply it, shall we? I mentioned this once before, but I'm going to mention it again. Be bold in speaking truth, not opinion. Be bold in speaking truth, not opinion. If it's written in here, it's truth, not opinion. I don't care what your opinion is on things if it's written in here. Okay? However, you know what's not written in this book? Capitalism versus socialism. It's not in here. You know what is written in there? Respect your governmental leaders. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, i.e., pay your taxes. Sorry, folks. It's what's written in here. To pray for your enemies. That's written in here. Stuff like that. You know, listen, you want to sit down and talk with me? I'll tell you my political views on most things. Most of you in here know my sports opinions, right? Luckily, luckily, they're not just opinions. They are truth. But the fact of the matter is that we never are called to offend somebody with our opinions. We are called to offend people with the truth. To love them with that truth, but the truth in and of itself is offensive. Secondly, church, and this ties in with our practical, practical application as well. 
diligently keep yourself focused on Christ. I was having a conversation on Wednesday night with the men's group uh, about worship and stuff like that, and somebody, I think it was um, Curtis, asked me, why do I oftentimes close my eyes during worship? And I said, the number one reason, I have ADD, I get distracted really easily. I see people doing stuff during worship, and I get distracted by it. I'm not called to be distracted by any of you. I'm called to worship God. So oftentimes, I keep my eyes closed during worship because it helps me to stay up there. You'll notice sometimes when I'm praying or leading in prayer, I will pick a point, you know, whether it's like um, uh, the dove in the, in, the, in the thing up there, uh, the tapestry thing up there, or something like that. Sometimes it's just literally the camera, although I try not to do that because I'm afraid it'll freak people out that are watching. But when I'm praying, I focus on one point so I don't get distracted by everything else around me. Because sometimes when I close my eyes, I still end up getting distracted because then my brain just starts to make up its own stuff. You ever been standing somewhere and you're like, I'm going to pray. And you go, dear God, and then like eight different things go through your brain and you go, sorry God, and you realize it's been ten minutes and you never actually started praying yet. Keep yourself focused on Christ. In order to do that, this is where the practical comes in. You have to begin your day focused on him. If you don't, you really don't stand much of a chance. Now, beginning your day focused on him does not inherently mean you're going to spend the rest of your day focused on him. But you've got to start off on the right foot, right? It's like, what did they used to say? I, don't, I, I think they've changed this for now. But that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, right? If you eat a good breakfast, you start your day off right. Eat a good breakfast. Start your day off right. When I wake up in the morning, I pull my phone out. I don't pull it out of my pocket. It's on my nightstand plugged in because it's my, it's my alarm. I turn off my alarm. I usually have two or three or four different uh, notifications from various things that happen throughout the night. I open it, and before I do anything else, I click on my little Bible app, and I meditate on whatever the verse of the day is. It's not long. It's literally two or three minutes. I lay in bed. Church, sometimes I fall back asleep. But I'm going to start my day. And when my snoozed alarm, because I'm not dumb enough to not snooze my alarm, when my snoozed alarm goes back off, I wake back up and I go, sorry, God, and I keep meditating on the verse. Just for a couple of minutes, because I want to start my day before I do anything, before I get out of bed, before I get a drink of water, before I go to the bathroom, anything. I want to spend a couple of minutes with him. Because I want to keep focused on him throughout the day. I'm not perfect. I get distracted so easily. So easily. So I have to strive for it. But I try to. And we need to as well. That's what I take from this. We see Peter on this mountaintop. We see him in this valley. And I say, if he had kept his mind and heart focused on Christ the whole time, he never would have been in the valley. And that's what I want to do. He would learn his lessons. They would take time just as it's taken time for all of us, but he would learn those lessons. The amazing thing is we have them written down here so that hopefully if we're smart enough, we don't have to learn them the hard way like he did. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you um, 
I thank you again for Peter, for his life, that, that he walked through as many things as he did to help teach us and, and grow us through your word. Father, I ask that you would help us to keep focused on you. It does not mean we don't watch the game. It doesn't mean we don't watch the Jeopardy. It doesn't mean we don't write. It's not that we spend every single waking moment reading the word. No, but I keep my eyes and my mind and my heart focused on you. All of us should as we walk this road, so that we don't end up like Peter in the bad way, just in the good way. We'll never be the rock upon which the church was built, because that was Peter, but we can be part of it. Father, I praise you. We lift you up. It's in the name of your son that we pray. Amen.